This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. We're really excited you guys are here. We're talking about... Well, we're just learning how to invest properly. <laughs> and we're talking about Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger again. Uh-huh. I mean, you know what? How, how bad could this be to talk about the best investors in the world and what they keep repeating always, the same lessons on investing for 60 years? And so they got 60 years out of it, Danielle. I think we're doing pretty good. We're entering year three here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or maybe it- we're entering year four. I can't even tell anymore. I don't know. It's, we have two. This is the 214th podcast. That would indicate four years, I think. I've already been completed, and we may be entering year five. Is that possible? It's totally possible. I am notoriously horrible at remembering when anything happens. So <sighs> I have no idea. Um, is this just me? I often don't know what happened like last week. Like I have to really think about it. And I'm not that yeah. old. Yeah, it's you. You're losing it. Okay. Yeah. All right. No question. You have, you have a perfect memory? Oh, perfect. I just remember everything. Oh, that's so when good. I, when I was traveling, listen, when I was traveling and doing all those stage shows with uh, Get Motivated, honestly, I couldn't tell you what city I was in last week. It was horrible. I had, I had no idea. None. <laughs> it was ridiculous. All right. Let's get so going. We got a lot to talk about. Here's what we have been doing is mm. I know what happened two weeks ago, which was we were in Omaha for the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting. And we already talked about it a whole bunch. And we did our part one episode. And this now is part two episode for Berkshire Hathaway. Um, Basically, like, what happened at this meeting? And we wanted to talk about it all. And we just couldn't fit it all into one episode. So, So where did we leave off? So we left off talking about uh, some kid you mentioned wanted, oh, wanted to, start to start a yeah. fund. He wanted to start a fund. This is really cool. Um, starting a fund. Um, how do you start? I think that's really where, where Buffett was kicking in. Is like He kind of took it from, from the kid saying, um, I want to start a fund, to how do you start a fund is kind of where Buffett went. He said, he said, in 1956, I was selling stock as a stockbroker. Mm-hmm. And people forget that. Warren didn't start rich. He started, he didn't start in New York. He didn't start with Ben Graham. He went to school with Ben Graham and learned that Ben learned what, what took Ben Graham's classes at Columbia. But then he was rejected by Ben Graham to join his firm. Buffett wanted to go to work for Graham Newman. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't allowed because he wasn't Jewish. Yeah. It was essentially so, reverse discrimination because it was so hard for Jewish guys to get hired by the like white shoe firms at the time that Graham decided he was only going to hire Jewish guys. And so Buffett yep. got excluded by that policy. Yep. So he, he was upset Omaha, about not knowing. Understandably. Hmm? He was upset about it. Understandably. 
Yeah, he he puts a light on it, though. It's kind of cute. He, he makes light of it by saying that he offered to go to work for Ben Graham for free, and Graham didn't feel it was worth the money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, all's well that ends well. So I right think on. he's all right with it. So Buffett goes back home. His dad was a stockbroker in Omaha, and he became a stockbroker. And then family members saw that in his own investing, he was doing quite well. And so they asked him about stocks he should buy. And then Buffett said, you know what? I'll tell you what, I'll manage money for you guys. And he did his first partnership. And we, we often talk about how you get started as a you know, operating a fund. And it, it always comes down for almost everyone who begins to operate a fund. It comes down to the three Fs, friends, <laughs> family, and fools <laughs> who will give you money. Yep. And so Buffett started with the friends and family thing. And uh, there were seven people. And he said he wouldn't have done it if he thought there was any chance that he'd lose their money. And that, that was the fundamental point of rule one investing, right? Which we talk about a lot. The focus is don't lose money. But he needed people. He didn't want to just manage money for anybody at all. He wanted to manage money for people who were in sync with the way he was thinking. And I thought this was such a huge point um, because if you've got to, if you're going to manage money and you're going to do it the way we're recommending that you do it in this podcast, you almost can't do that if you're a fund manager. It's so difficult because of who is investing with you. Well, that's, I think the, the difficulty is the long period of time in which the companies that you own may have their price go down. Have their de price, prices depressed. The price declines, so yeah. The, the sort of way people, almost all people, and certainly all big money people who give money to a fund manager, the way they look at the market is called marked to market. That means that every month... <clears throat> The fund manager that you you put your money with has to look at all the stocks you own, look at the price they have on the last day of the month, and figure out the value of your portfolio based on that price. Not what they're worth, mm -hmm. but that price. Yeah. And that's called mark-to-market. So what you're saying is if it goes, if the market's going up and those 10 stocks are going down, you've got a problem because it looks like you're losing money when the market isn't losing money. And as a result, the fund, the, the people are going to take their money out of your fund and they're going to put it in some other fund. Precisely. So the goal is to find people to invest with you who understand this concept that you've taught to me, Dad, to, uh, to ride through these price drops. And so is that what Buffett said in answer to this question? Because I actually don't remember the question. Yeah, it really struck me because, <clears throat> excuse me, because... Um, it's something that I think about a lot, right? I'm, I do manage a little bit of money. And so we, we want to reach the people who are going to be in sync with us when we manage money. And that was Buffett's basic first point is, number one, you shouldn't need lawyers to draft huge documents. Sorry about that. And like it, it should be people you trust who trust you. Um, and they understand the rules about when they should send you roses is what he said. Here are the <laughs> rules for when you should send me roses. Um, <laughs> and he said, you absolutely shouldn't do institutions because institutions are not in sync with this kind of investing, mm. which means that eliminates virtually every single large fund manager out there. They're all institutionally based. Um, so he says, I don't mind taking 
everything an, an investor has, every last penny an investor has, as long as we have the same expectations. And that means you should turn down a lot of people. They won't have those same expectations. You should start small. Um, you should invest for your parents, you know. You know, maybe you won't be the best investor in the world, but if you follow the rules that we teach, you will be decent over time. I love that whole little thing he did there because he very rarely talks about investing anymore um, to ordinary people. He's basically saying, now you should just put your money in an index fund. But here's this guy saying, I want to do this. And Buffett's saying, mm -hmm. you can do it. Mm -hmm. You're going to do a decent job, mm -hmm. but just be sure you have the right investors. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. something that's a huge issue for people who follow Warren Buffett and who want to be professionals. It's really a huge issue. Um, and I think there's, there's stuff that professional investors can do to ensure that they do have the right kind of investors. And there are some out there that are big institutions that, that want to be investing with long-term Buffett-style funds. There are. They're few and far between, mm -hmm. but they exist. And they are equally very careful in finding <coughs> the right managers for that style. And so I think if you can be one of the select few who kind of finds the right match, essentially dating and hoping you find the right person, um, then it can work. But that's, it's really rare and it's hard. And, and I think understanding the incentives that people are under is key. And we've talked a lot about that in this podcast. And that's essentially what I, I Mr. Think, Buffett was honestly, saying. Honestly, I think that, um, not, didn't mean to talk over you there, but I, I think that it's really true that you can find, as a professional investor, you can find a few large pension funds that are willing to ride it along with you. But I don't, I think you can in theory. I don't know if you actually can in practice. I think Bruce Berkowitz is an excellent example of a great investor who takes a very, very long-term view and has watched his fund go from uh, 18 billion down, you know, by 11 billion. I mean, it just drops off like a brick as soon as you don't do the market, in spite of what everybody says and in spite of what they know, is they can't afford to. They're under such pressure, you know. Um, and it and you've you've pointed this out. At, actually, the only person in the world I ever knew that pointed this out that even Buffett and Munger talk about institutional fund managers kind of getting irrational. Um, when it comes to taking their money away from the market. And it's just, it's, it, I really agree with you. I don't think it's irrational. I think they're just recognizing that they don't get paid based on sitting there for five years. It's just not how they're getting compensated. So yeah. usually if you're looking at why, how to understand something, follow the money and, and the answer will be there. So good on you for figuring that out, Danielle. <laughs> Thanks. That was pretty I cool. I think Buffett and Munger <clears throat> understand all of these things extremely well. I think they just tend to be a little... Uh, dismissive <laughs> of the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, there was one more little dismissive piece that was quite cute with in regard to this sort of fund thing, and that is that somebody asked them, what is Berkshire's core competence? What do you want to focus on? And Buffett said, well, we really don't have one. <laughs> we don't have a core competence. We don't, huh. we don't expect to know anything particularly except how to pick people who do have a core competence. And I thought that was such a good insight for you and me, right? It's like, as investors, we don't need a core competence per se. We just have to kind of know what's, you know, what's outside of what we sort of understand that we can make decisions about. And Buffett and Munger this time talked a lot more about making decisions, not so much with knowledge about the business as knowledge about the people running it. And, yeah, and I thought that did. was pretty good insight. Wait, are you talking about a circle of competence or like a Berkshire core competence? Yeah, Berkshire, the company. Oh, 
core competence yeah. as opposed to an investor's circle of competence. I think he was aiming at the same thing. And Buffett just basically said, nah, you know, we really don't have one. We sort of just hire people who are, um, you know, really good at investing. So I, I, that's real interesting because, you know, he's talking to us about having core competence in our own investing. And, um, but I, I, I mean, think I think it, it does. They, they, what am I trying to say? They, they, they are, they are the same. Like what he's done from the very beginning is purchase companies that in many cases have been talent acquisitions. They've purchased companies that have excellent people running them and Buffett just wanted to work with those people who are, for example, um, oh, I'm forgetting her name right now, but the the woman who ran uh, Nebraska Furniture Mart and Mrs. B, Mrs. B, um, who was incredible and created this essentially a monopoly in Omaha of furniture sales. And he just wanted to own her company and anything she did with it and made sure that she was happy and that she could stay there as long as she wanted, which I think was until after she was a hundred years old. And, yeah. and they still own that company, even though she's no longer there because it remained a great company. Um, you could find a lot of examples like that of talent acquisitions they've done. And so what he's saying there is Berkshire itself has become a conglomerate. It's, a lot of different companies from in a lot of different areas that don't seem to relate to each other, but they've always kept it so that they're hiring people who can run those companies extremely well. And then he always says, I just let them do their thing. He does not micromanage them. They hardly have to report to him, to him or to anybody at Berkshire headquarters. I mean, there's not much of a Berkshire headquarters and they just let them run their companies really well. They step in if there's a problem. But otherwise, it's like, go for it. Be an owner of your own company. And by doing yeah, that, they've done exactly so like well. That. He puts it exactly like be an owner. And um, I think the question was in, in terms of, you know, things are changing faster than ever in the world. Mm. How do you know this company is going to survive the next big wave change yes, and so on? Yes. And that was the answer. You have to have the right people. They know their businesses and they are up on where those changes are going. And... Um, and by the way, you know, it's the nature of capitalism to be creatively destructive, mm -hmm. right? It's like you, the nature of capitalism is to, and what, what makes so much wealth is that things that aren't working as efficiently as they should or could with new technology are destroyed by the new technology, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we don't use typewriters anymore. Those are gone, um, you know, and you can look at it, you know, my, my, your great, great, great grandfather was a harness maker in Ottumwa, Iowa. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, dude, but <laughs> they don't need you a lot anymore. Um, and so right now the gasoline engine, for example, is, yeah. uh, probably headed for that sort of harness maker level of, uh, of value as they figure out batteries better and so on. Yeah. So you've got to, your business has to evolve over time or it's going to get, wiped out. And the really good businesses do evolve because they have a moat, because they have something that protects them and gives them time to adjust. And that's what we're looking for 
as investors is understanding what's that intrinsic characteristic that protects these guys, like a like a, a, a switching moat for, for Microsoft was gigantic because they were missing the boat. They tried to catch the boat with search and Google wiped them out. And then they tried to you know move everything forward with their next level. And all of a sudden they figured out server farms and now they're coming back big time. Mm-hmm. And and Microsoft is now one of the most valuable companies in the world, and it was on the way out not too it long absolutely ago. Absolutely, Apple. Was, yeah. Same thing. Apple was near extinction, um, and they they out of desperation they brought back Steve Jobs in the late nineties, and um, Steve turned the company around. So it's it's an art, and it depends on great management, and we 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 don't know for sure, right, that we're going to have it. So as investors, we have to do our best to understand what's going on in that in that business. But at the end of the day, it's going to be up to management. And if we see the company not making the change and adjusting the change, then we have to make a change. If the story is changing, we change, our, we change our investment strategy. I think it's such a beautiful point that you made to look for companies that may not be doing right now what we expect to have happen in the future, but that have the ability to make that shift. Because then it's something yep. that you can really confidently invest in for like they invested in American Express, like what did we figure out? Like 35 years or 40 years ago or something crazy. Yeah. So yeah, that and kind of investment where you just buy it and you just hold on and there is nothing else to do. Like what an incredibly easy way to make money. It is. An, oh, which brings up another point he made is that a kid asked, <laughs> this is so cute. Some kids got up on, on the mics with their parents. And this kid said, how do I learn to have delayed gratification? Because I really want everything now. I don't think they totally understood that question, I have to say. I thought it was really cute. Because but here's, it's such here's a like, they, they washword question right now is everyone's complaining <laughs> about how the kids can't deal with like waiting for anything. And it's all about right now, right now, right now. And Well, Buffett spun it pretty good into um, how do you invest, right? This is really cool. He basically said, look, if you put your money in bonds and you get 3% and you have 2% inflation over time, um, that ultimately ends up eating up almost all of the growth of the value of your money, you know, you get, you know, a Disneyland ride with your money in uh, 2019 and 40 years later, you get a Disneyland ride with your money in 2059. Totally. Yeah. <clears throat> you end up with the, no advantage at all. You, although the money looks bigger, it isn't because its buying power is the same. He said, if that's how you're going to invest, I wouldn't delay my gratification at yeah. all. <laughs> I would just spend it now because it's going to be worth in 40 years what it's worth today. He said, the only way to really justify, you know, delaying your gratification is if you're investing wisely. And then it makes it worth it because you're compounding money at a much higher rate of return. And it's going to be worth a lot more in terms of buying power down the road 50 years or 40 years or 30 mm-hmm. years. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I thought it was cool too. I think they both kind of didn't relate to the question at all because they've both talked about how it just comes incredibly naturally to them at at other times they've (laughs) talked about how it just comes incredibly naturally to them to invest for the future and delay the gratification and wait, wait, wait and compound and keep investing the money that you make back into the companies. And like, they've just, they've talked a number of times about 
how easy that is for them to the point that they have hardly ever even thought about it. And I think that Buffett, Buffett says, I, I don't delay gratification. I spend two or three pennies out of every <laughs> dollar I earn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Um, So I think, you know, it's kind of like when they say something along the lines of you can't learn this stuff like you're either born understanding the concept that price is different than value or you're not. And clearly I firmly disagree with that statement. And I also disagree that you can't learn delayed gratification when it comes to investing. I think it just comes so naturally to them. They can't imagine being any other way. Yeah, I I, I agree. So I want to talk Um, about ESG companies because this was something as a mission-driven investor was extremely interesting to me and illuminating. Somebody asked them, um, so an ESG company is the new way of talking about basically like a conscious company, a conscious capitalism kind of company. And there's so many different terms for it and nobody can agree on these things. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And it is essentially trying to get the point across that a company that is a quote unquote ESG company considers stakeholders other than just profit maximization. There are other kinds of so-called conscious companies out there like impact companies, um, B Corp's uh, conscious capitalism it has its own whole other definition. So there's all sorts of versions out there. But the question was particularly about ESG companies and said Berkshire doesn't score well on these lists of qualifications of ESG companies. And basically like, what the heck? And Buffett said, we think we're a fantastic ESG company. And actually, we measure up incredibly well but we just choose not to fill out the reports. And I thought that was... Oh, he, 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 he went farther than that. He did go that. farther than that. Charlie really jumped on it. He, Charlie yes, said... but first let me just say, <laughs> I didn't even realize that this was a thing. I didn't know that companies fill out reports about their ESG qualifications and that an option would be to not fill out the darn report. I mean... This calls into question every list you find out of these ESG or impact or whatever companies if the companies don't even respond. So it's not an independent valuation. It's it's of the companies that responded. Here's what we found out. And by the way, they're the ones giving us this information. That's extremely important to somebody who is looking at, let's say, like one of the many, uh, what are they called, ETFs or index funds that purport to be ESG or impact funds, which pull from these um, lists and from these qualifications. So if companies like Berkshire aren't even filling out the bloody reports, how reliable can they really be? It just sort of blew my mind. Yeah. And these are reports about, you know, uh, how, how the climate, how the, how the company's doing with climate change, how the company's doing with inclusion, all of this stuff. Right. And, and Charlie was like basically saying something very um, aggressive about this as he does sometimes. He says, essentially these best practices that are formed around ESG and the reports that are demanded of uh, about ESG, he says, Basically, people who, I'm quoting now, people who talk about best practices don't know what they are. Mm -hmm. 
They talk what will sell, not what will work. Mm. He says, I hope we never follow their best practices. So Charlie's taking a totally different, non-politically correct point of view. Buffett's going, hey, we, we're, the, we're fine. We're the best at it, even though we don't fill out the form. Charlie's saying, bullcrap. We are not going to follow those kinds of practices because they're stupid. They don't generate the results in ESG that the people who are determining what the score is going to be are thinking that they do. That's not what I took right? from what Charlie said at all. Uh, okay. I think, I think that he doesn't think they're automatically stupid. He just thinks that following them to the letter like that so that they score well on a report is stupid. What they said, and I don't have listed who said this, but they said they just prefer to have their the people who run each individual company in Berkshire to have them behave as co-owners and w- that they don't want to ask 60 of their subsidiaries to all do the same thing. They just want their managers to do the right thing and give them huge latitude to do that. So they're not going to tie up resources if they don't need to. And they just want to make sure that the managers running their companies follow the general ethos of do the right thing, not get tied up in these individual little report kinds of choices. Well, I think I think it could get pretty intense, actually, about what the right thing actually means here. Well, of course, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of political correctness that I think Munger and Buffett won't subscribe to because it's damaging to both the goal of the political correctness and to the company itself that's trying to practice and it. And that's where you so, have to know your company and you have to know if, if quote-unquote, do the right thing is something that each of us agrees with. Yeah. I mean, there's so much going on out in the world right now that people are, are, that are influencing people's decisions. And one of the things that's really happening that they were talking about is that boards of directors are not very good at yeah, directing a company. They're very bad at directing a company. Point. Yes. And and so they they basically let the CEO run loose wherever they want to mm-hmm. go. And he said that independent directors who are supposed to be, right, they're not working for the company. They're supposed to be independent and be able to judge for the owners of the company <clears throat> the performance of the CEO and his team. He says those are the least independent people on the board. He yeah. said that if $250,000 a year is an important part of your income and your retirement, and you know you hope you get a recommendation from the CEO that you get to be on the board, um, you're not going to raise problems. You, you are not going to raise issues. And, and basically, Warren was saying, how is that independence? Exactly. It's, it's not. It's not independence. No, it can't be. It can't be. It means you have, said, I, you have said, a job, basically, and your job is yeah, to support the person job. who pays your salary. And that's correct. That's yep. exactly what happens. Even if somebody is trying hard to be independent, if you're depending on that money, you're not going to make a fuss that's going to get you fired. You're just not. And, I, and honestly, I think Warren was, he says, I, he says, I can't recall any independent director who was actually independent who actually needed the $250,000 a year. Yeah. Straight up. Um, he said, man, you get these independent directors, they go on the comp committee, right? The compensation of the CEO. And then once you're on the compensation committee, why would you upset the apple cart? You're not going to do that. He said, it's just the way that it works. And then Charlie stepped in and said, it's worse than, w- than Warren is telling mm-hmm. you. It's worse than that. It's really um, unfortunate because I've just... been around some really extraordinary boards on startups. Really incredible people. 
all working together, disagreeing like crazy, bringing in VC viewpoint and founder viewpoint and angel investor viewpoint and lawyer viewpoint. And it's just, it's lovely. And I've been really disappointed by the public company version of boards because it is this like weird sort of, not at every company, right? But in general, it's this weird sort of croniest um, professional board member vibe. And and there are some companies don't have it like that quite so much. And I think especially the really major ones, like I think of like the Apple board has a lot of people who are very um, intelligent and smart and have their own money. The Berkshire board, I don't think is like that probably. Um, So there's a few examples, but, um, but knowing who the board members are on a company that I'm invested in, I think is, is kind of hard to do sometimes if they're not known but it's important to try to figure out who these people are and how they got on the board and who's the person who introduced them and why they're still there. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I, I, the kind of, the kind of board members I like are people who have a whole bunch of shares of stock. <laughs> That's you know, a good point. Those, that, you know, obviously there can be differences of, of opinion from short-term and long-term investors. And, and one of the big questions of, is about activist hedge fund managers who get on the board who are looking for a short, short-term value hit when maybe the right thing to do is much longer term. But in general, people who have a lot of stock are going to vote like owners do, as opposed to being toadies for the CEO. Um, so... You know, I think I, Warren told a really cute story about being on the board of a company that they owned a big piece of. And I've been in this position where we own a big piece of the of the company. And the rest of the board were just token owners. They only had slight numbers of shares. And they had a tax issue that came up. And one of the directors said, well, let's just have the company swallow the tax. And for him, it was like, have, you know, costing him $15. It would be what his total cost would be. And I said... Let's let me parse that sentence. Quote, let's who's let's wait, is this you? Who is the who we? Is this you? Oh, this Buffett. Is Buffett saying, Who is the we should, who should swallow yeah. the tax? This is for you, it's $15. For us, it's a lot of money. He said, He said, So let's do this let's swallow an equal share of the tax. How's that in the board of directors? <laughs> let's spread it equally. This is, you know. And then the guy turned around and says, well, why are you guys so important just because you own most of the shares? <laughs> <laughs> what? And that's the <sighs> attitude of many boards and many management teams is <clears throat> just because the owners own a lot of shares, why are they so right. important? I mean, we're running the right. company. And that has to – I don't know how we fix that. I don't think we fix it the way Elizabeth Warren wants to fix it, but kudos to her for raising the issue – uh, you know, I'm not a fan, just saying, but they, she does raise interesting issues about the malfeasance of these boards and these CEOs and the way they're handling things. And I, I don't know what the right answer is. I haven't thought about it that much, but there needs to be a different system because right now this is very broken. I'll tell you that much. It is yeah, it's very a problem. Broken. And independent board members tend not to be big shareholders. They tend to be outsiders. So if you're exactly. expecting somebody to be truly independent and yet have a vested interest in how this company does that's you know it's it's all it's all just complicated and hopefully you find good people and it doesn't always happen i want to end on a point that was a huge takeaway for me probably the biggest thing 
out of the whole meeting and I just have been thinking about it for two weeks. Um, somebody asked them how they, I think how they handle uh, getting along for so long because they've been together for 60 years, Buffett and Munger. And Charlie just started talking about how they really enjoy collecting things and they're people who collect things. And if you enjoy collecting, then you will just be an investor and a collector your whole life and enjoy it your whole life. Oh, I like that idea of collecting. And he said, um, he said they've never had an argument. They've had disagreements, but never an argument. And I just thought that was so cool. And then both of them started talking and it wasn't in these words exactly, but both of them started talking about how this process of going through an entire life together, essentially of, of being partners for so long and, and other people, they talked about a secretary that they had who had been with them for a really long time and, and other people they've worked with. And so many people at Berkshire Hathaway have been there for decades and they just both said essentially sticking with, with the same people for a long time and going through the journey together is what adds so much happiness to what they do. Oh, I just so thought it was cool. so, I didn't pick up on it that. was, that was so great. beautiful. And <laughs> it wasn't in those words exactly, but that was the gist of it. And I've just been thinking about that ever since, because I think investing to people who are starting out feels extremely alone and lonely and scary. And to think about it now, and I'm starting to really consciously think about this to develop the people around me who are going to be with me until I'm, 96 years old (laughs) and still investing that is where the joy is they're right that is where the joy is I mean I enjoy it myself but to have a few trusted people like go through that with you and and have the success at the same time it's amazing I was just at this entrepreneur event and uh, Jean-Claude Biver, Biver is his last name I think um, who started Hublot the watchmaker spoke And he said essentially the same thing. And I felt like it was the universe like talking to me because he said, Mm. and he has this fascinating entrepreneur story and came from nothing and, um, and started this, this watch company. He's been with essentially the same people. He said for 40 years since he started the watch company and they now don't even have to talk about decisions. They can just look in each other's eyes and know what the other person is thinking And, you know, of Mm. course it's a little hyperbole, but it was just the way he talked about it. And he just said, you know, that's what's so fun about this. I mean, he's getting older and he is still totally vital and totally involved in his company. And he just was like, I take care of my people. He talked a lot about mistakes and how he, as the head of the company, takes on every mistake and every success is the success of his team. So the trust, the trust that grows over time is what keeps those people there and, and keeps them staying with him for 40 years. So hearing these, these incredible successful entrepreneurs and investors say essentially the same thing in a space of two weeks is a bit extraordinary and it's just been really stuck in my mind. So that's, that's what I'm talking about. I'm so glad you highlighted this. It wasn't something I was focused on and, and I've just, want to say, honey, that, you know, working with you, doing this podcast, teaching you to invest has been one of the really, truly great 
things in my life. I mean, I just absolutely love it. It's amazing. I mean, it's amazing that we can do this together and on and off the podcast and talk about investing stuff now. It's just kind of wild. (laughs) And I'll say that, you know, it's like we're, we have a number of people here who are are working with me and, and it's like, your uncle's here, you know, Melissa's sister's here. It's like we, ha- we, we sort of talk about the rule one family as, as being a family started by Ben Graham and, and, and taken on by Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger as our grandfathers in this, in this amazing family of investors that are out there. And there really is a family. I mean, I'm, you've told, talked about it just in a generality, but I would say there is specifically a rule one type family that's been developed and people share this common culture that's been developed by Buffett yeah. and Hunger. Yeah. And you <clears> can and see awesome. that, you can see that awesome. in the 40,000 people that go to the Berkshire meeting every year, which they could sit at oh home gosh, and watch yeah. online, but no, they go to the arena. It's amazing. So, it's incredible. I mean, I'm baffled. Last year we had 10,000 people travel to Atlanta or to a city where we did our three-day workshop. Mm-hmm. 10,000. It's amazing. Right? Every month over 100,000 people are checking in to say, hey, I'm interested in this stuff. So there's, I think there's a revolution going on. It's slow, but it's starting and it's a family thing. There's this we're we're sort of collectors and we're both collectors of great companies and we're collectors of people who are interested in what we're doing and mm-hmm. it's really cool. So I guess we could well, wrap this podcast up and just say we're really happy you are all in part of that family. It's absolutely. pretty great. So I have actually a topic for next time that fits perfectly into that theme. And I've mentioned this before on the podcast, I think. One of my friends had a baby recently and she got a little extra money from her tax re- refund and wants to put it into some investment for her baby for him to get in, let's say, 20 to 25 years. What should that investment be? Can we talk about that next time? Okay, yeah, that's a good one. Literal family. (laughs) That's a good one. That'll that'll take us into it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Very cool. All right, thanks, everybody. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Time to go play. See ya. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.